I'm Sean Eckford, a member of the Board of Directors here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and the producer of our festival podcasts. I closed the last podcast by saying Sheila Rogers' Rockwood Lecture would be a night to remember, and it was. Sheila said she wanted it to be more like a visit than a lecture, and that's exactly how it felt. With the idea of listening as one of the big topics getting tossed around the imaginary coffee table. The witness naming event where I was inducted took place in Inuvik in front of hundreds of survivors. It was at the national, uh, national Northern event, and the ceremony was in the gym of Sir Alexander Mackenzie School, which had been a federal, former federal day school. During a break, I ran into a woman I knew from Peter Zosky's literacy initiatives in the North. And she told me she was there to give her statement. I hadn't known she was a survivor, and I expressed my surprise, and she said, well, I am. And then silence. Silence that made me uncomfortable. In radio, we call silence dead air. In fact, there was a time when if there were more than 10 seconds of silence, an alarm would go off in master control and radio, triggering an on-air apology, which I'm sure you've heard. We're sorry. We're experiencing technical difficulties. (laughs) Please stand by until regular programming is resumed. And then would come some truly awful film music that probably hadn't changed since the 1950s. But I was trained to fill in silences with words, and I started bombarding this woman with questions. Where were you taken? How long were you there? When did you get to go home? What contact did you have with your family? How did you make it through each day? This woman, who is now an esteemed Gwich'in elder, looked at me and said, Sheila Rogers, you have to shut up and listen. She was right, she was right. Uh, And by not shutting up and not listening, I was invalidating her experience. I was taking over, I was trying to direct where we were going with my questions. And I was really sabotaging her story. So shut up and listen has been the most important lesson of my life. I have a sticky note pasted on my microphone in my studio with those words and that phrase on it. And it changes the way I talk, or rather not talk. And it changes relationships. It really changes everything. And I know I owe this woman my respect and a profound Masi Cho. Also on the program Thursday night was Harley Rustad, author of Lost in the Valley of Death. His look at the disappearance of Justin Shetler in India's Parvati Valley. During the Q&A, Rustad faced a common festival author conundrum, avoiding big spoilers. Is there any way to tell without spoiling the book, for those of us who haven't read it yet, what you think happened to him and whether or not... <laughs> Whether or not he was the victim of foul play, is there a serial killer on the loose there, or did you come to some other conclusion? And can you tell us about that? Uh, No. Um, Let's just say that all of your, those potential theories that you brought up there, and many more, I, I 
interrogate as best I can in the book and present lots of shreds of evidence that I uncovered for a lot of different theories. But I think I pitched this book, or I pitched this story to Outside Magazine as a magazine article initially. And I remember in my pitch email saying, you know, I'm not setting myself out to solve this story perfectly. And I think there's this um, inclination in a lot of true crime writing for sure to, and this fascination with these stories to have something wrapped up perfectly in a bow uh, that has a perfect answer. And I was always drawn to Justin's life, to this story, because it, it isn't perfect and it doesn't have a perfect ending. Um, and, you know, life doesn't necessarily have perfect endings. We always end with a lot of questions unanswered. And I think this is kind of reflected in, in, his, in his story. One of the, I think I can tease this. It, one of the um, theories, and I mentioned in India over the decades and centuries, people have gone there and, you know, found what they were looking for and, and shed their previous lives um, burnt their passports and, and decided to stay forever. And the Parvati Valley, I found, was one of these uh, very, very popular destinations or, or corners of India for these people. And there was one report that I found in, in kind of the, to, from 2011, 2012 that said there were thousands of Westerners living in the, in the hills and the mountains in the Parvati Valley in complete isolation. And how the story kind of gets complicated. I traveled to this village um, called Milana in the Parvati Valley that uh, is kind of famous for a lot of different reasons. And one of them, because it produces some of the best hash in the world. Um, two, it's the oldest surviving democracy in the world. Um, it has its own language that people in the next village don't understand. It has these incredibly confusing customs where they're essentially of such a high caste that anybody else in India, anyone else, is below them. So if I went to touch a building, I'll be fined a huge amount of money. If I touched a person, I'd be in serious trouble. And so to buy something, you put the money on the ground, they put what you want to buy on the ground, and you exchange it that way. There's nothing, there's no touching. It's a very interesting place, and it's very isolated. And because of all of these forces, this kind of mystery and magic and isolation, it is drawn thousands and thousands of foreigners to disappear up in the mountains around Milana. And the one thing I'll say about Justin's story is that that was a theory. Um, as much as he posted about his life online on his blog, on Instagram account, the final line that he shared before he went on this pilgrimage to this holy lake with a sadhu is, if I don't come back, don't look for me. I'll leave it there. <laughs> Sunday morning brought S. Bear Bergman to the stage. And it's always impressive to me the number of festival attendees who will turn out early on a Sunday morning. In special topics on being human, Bear offers life advice based on his Ask Bear column, but with some lively illustrations by artist Saul Friedman Lawson. And the book is illustrated for, really for two reasons. Uh, one is that my husband is really smart. And two is that I still really like him. And so I listen to him when he talks. 
And so at the time that I was starting to think about this book, he was uh, doing work around, he's an education professor, and he was doing work around uh, teaching teachers and working with children to teach teachers. It's fascinating. He's super smart. And so he was making comics and studying with Linda Barry, and he did a graphic recording course, and every day new art supplies arrived to the house. And he was drawing, and then the kids started drawing. Now we're in zine production. The whole family is in publishing. I don't know what to tell you. But the thing that really struck me about his work, sort of the thesis of this phase, was the idea that when, when the message is a little difficult, having illustrations, like pictures, not, you know, graphic design, but like images, that there's a certain way in which it helps people to get around their any amount of natural defensiveness that they might have. It's sort of, it engages our curiosity, our sort of, um, our playfulness, if you will, in a way that allows us to be less defensive. It doesn't feel quite so much like, I'm telling you, it's more, look, an idea. Instead of the traditional Q&A, Bear invited people to stand up and ask for advice. Afterwards, I asked him if he was worried that nobody would take him up on it. A little nervous, you know. The truth is that every time we get to the point where I say, okay, who has questions, it doesn't usually take a super long time in, like, regular clock time. When I have seen videos of this, it's just a, sometimes five, ten seconds. But when I'm standing up on stage, it feels like a month. You know, it's just... And I, I was, I'll be honest, I was a little worried that, you know, that the audience, which is, which is a little older than many of the audiences that I typically have was going to take one look at me and be like, what? I don't, I don't need any advice from this kid, right? I already know plenty of things that he probably doesn't know. And, and that's true, right? Like they definitely know things that I don't know. Um, but I was sort of hoping that I'd made the case well enough that I might know things that they didn't know that we could uh, go forward. So I was extremely relieved when people had questions. Where do you get your advice from? Uh, I get it from my friends. I get it from my from my no people. You know, in the right. uh, in the talk, I talked about the fact that uh, that you know we all need sort of a small group of people who we can really rely on to tell us if something's a bad idea, you know, or if we need to rethink or if we need to pause or whatever. And so when I have what I think is a great idea, I typically um, run it past a couple of people to see what they think. And, you know, if it all feels too overwhelming, then we sort of uh, cross our fingers and work from there, you know. Um, but I've got, I've got great friends, um, and also a really wide age range, uh, among my friends, which I think is very helpful because I definitely get different advice from the, from the 25 year olds and the 75 year olds. And, you know, and I, and I very much value that. 
have you been enjoying the festival experience overall? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been lovely. Everyone, I've had great conversations. Uh, it's been truly like delightful in every sense of the word. Every year, it seems like we program one event that turns out to be even more timely than it was when it was first added to the program. And all the news that's fit to print was that event this year. Led by Catherine Gretzinger, journalists Kamal Al-Soleili, Marsha Lederman, Andre Picard, and Charmaine De Silva dissected the current state of the news media and possible strategies for strengthening it in the future. One of the things that made the event so timely was this week's attack on author Salman Rushdie. Marsha Lederman actually wrote a Globe and Mail story on it right here at the festival, and that became an illustration for a point about context from Andre Picard. The thing we do worst in journalism, the thing we do worst is context. So, yeah, maybe you're chasing ambulances for a week, but at the end of that week, why are they always going to the same place? That's the story you need to tell. You don't need to just tell the same ambulance chasing story. So look at the context. And I think, you know, in, in healthcare, that's particularly important because there's so much misinformation, confusion, complexity. That's what we do. If we do well, we give people context. That this is why something is happening, not just it's happening. And then you eventually can get to that longer form pieces when you start to, to understand. You know, just an example is, uh, you know, Marsha did a story here right that we talked about Salman Rushdie being stabbed she rushed out did a story and that's what that story was it was context why does this matter to a bunch of people sitting in Seychelles it matters profoundly because it's about free speech it's about safety it's about our futures and we don't do enough of that just thinking telling us why this matters you know I read all these stories well Salman Rushdie got stabbed and here's some video well that doesn't inform me very much what informed me is a story like hers And just to underscore, it, it, there was a lot of thought that went into that rushed job of a story. Marsha thought, whose voices need to be in this piece? And she talked to a number of festival directors to make sure that she had a range of perspectives and voices to be able to bring that context and complexity to a straightforward story. So kudos. But I, I should say, I mean, I wrote that story in, I don't know, a couple of hours, um, sitting on a chair and using another chair as a desk, but um, there were years that went into that story. I knew all those people that I talked to from years as an arts journalist on a beat that I take very seriously, and that has allowed me to make good contacts. So beat reporting is another thing that really helps you to create good journalism with that context. Uh, that is so valuable to readers. Yeah, I mean, at the heart of all good journalism is reporting, as far as I'm concerned. And I think, and maybe, maybe, and I say that knowing very well that Andre is a columnist. Maybe the pendulum has swung in some in some newspapers towards opinion um, a little bit, and not enough investment in reporting. Um, as uh, I mean, reporting. I mean, the thing about reporting is reporting costs money. Reporting requires resources. The panel also addressed the toxic atmosphere a lot of working journalists in this country are facing. The harassment that is happening right now, online, in emails, um, but mostly online, uh, of journalists on social media is appalling. It is, um, it's so beyond the pale, I can't use most of the language in this uh 
in this forum that is used to attack us. And it's particularly bad for racialized journalists. It's particularly bad for female journalists and young female journalists. But Andre has really uh, been the target of a lot of this. And it is so disturbing the way people feel they um, can communicate with you, harass you in, in such, um, such crude forms. I don't know. How do you deal with it? Because you do get a lot of... Just yeah, a two-minute warning. Yeah, so I think, you know, it is relative. I do get a lot of crap, a lot of, you know, death threats even. But I think it is, uh, it is far, far worse for my younger colleagues, for women, for racialized workers. There's no comparison. But what's disturbing is when you're going out to cover things, like when I went to the trucker convoy, for example, you have to hide your identity, right? You have to hide your cameras sometimes so you don't get attacked in TV. This is... In, an impediment to our jobs and that's a, a, to me an attack on a journalist on a writer is a, an attack on democracy and that's not because we're special it's because what we do is really important like, like I really want people to reflect on this we're talking about Canada in 2022 and you have to hide yourself as a journalist I really want everyone in the room to think about that how how you know they not only be what does that say about the profession but also about the, the corruption of public discourse to the point where we get to where you get to hide the fact that you are a journalist. I think that's very frightening. One of the things I am seeing, though, is amidst all of this horror and the reality that it is that much more dangerous to be out there. Um, we are having conversations in newsrooms about mental health and keeping each other safe and things that we can do. You know, we have, after, uh, you know, all throughout the convoy uh, for our newsroom in Ottawa and even across the country, because in Vancouver we had protests show up outside of our newsroom door with people holding signs. Um, it's brought us, it's, it's sort of had a, a, an awakening around mental health and support that has not been there before, which is, I think, great. Um, and it's also, in, in a sort of twisted way, um, given a lot of young journalists a purpose around how important their work is, right? If, if people want to silence you that badly, how important is it? How important is your work? And it, you know, especially when you are not paid well and the cost of living is hard and all of those things, um, re revitalizing that sense of purpose um, can be really powerful. So, so that, that gives me a little bit of hope ab around the future and people wanting to stick, in, stick with it because uh, there, there are some things that last. One of everybody's favorite Sunday events is New Voices. This year, featuring Cedar Bowers and Francesca Equiesi in conversation with Megan Cole of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. She also programmed the event, and as you might expect after what we've gone through the last couple of years, she wanted to know how the authors felt about launching their first books in the middle of a pandemic. I hate to bring up the pandemic, and I wasn't, I wasn't even going to... Um... But I, as, as a writer myself who is, has written a book, and I know there were a lot of people who release books, I mean, Isabella and so many people in this audience uh, who have shared their stories this weekend released books during a pandemic. And it was a, not an easy time for writers and for writers who'd maybe had a book or two before. Um, I, I think it would be different than when you dream of what your book is what it will look like to launch your book and then you launch it from your 
bedroom in your pajamas. Um, and I wondered what it, you know, how that's been for you to have, you know, it's been multiple years, you've worked on your book, um, and then you released it during the pandemic. Um, how was that? How are you doing with that? And how does it feel now that we're starting to move to this place? Honestly, um, you know, I don't know any different. And just having written a book and having it published, not to be annoying, but it truly is a dream come true. So I'm just like, dope. Like, I don't know what it's like to like have traveled with my debut novel the way that maybe I would have had a chance to pre-pandemic. Um, but it was pretty delightful, <laughs> uh, despite the fact that the world was, you know, it is what it is. Um, my, my, my life felt really, um, you know, privileged and like blessed. And so we'll see with the next one if there isn't a virus ruining our lives. Um, but I had so much support as well because I was home and my adopted home, Halifax, with my community, with my friends. Um, Samara's here <laughs> from Arsenal Hall. And uh, we had many phone calls and many emails. And so I think I hadn't pictured something different. And so I was just happy. I do love to travel, though. And so this is the farthest I've traveled with this book. And it feels incredible. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know any different either. But I also feel like there was a lot of good in that. I hadn't ever spoken in public or done any of the things. So being on Zoom was kind of nice. I got to slowly work my way into, I'm pretty shy. So my bedroom was a good place to do things from. And then, but now I, you know, I gained some skills through that. It's been about like change and being a slightly different person or doing different things. And so being here, I feel ready now. But I don't know if I was ready one year ago. Um, there was that heat dome right when Astra came out and I just got to sit in my bedroom with ice packs down my back and on my lap and under my feet and talk on Zoom. And it, I was okay and now I'm okay too, so. Oh, I do have something to say. I think something about being in my own home with my own people made it, um, I got to be myself. And so now I feel more at ease being myself. Because I did, the one thing I did imagine was that I would have a more like professional, <laughs> like, you know, like all my favorite authors just, but I'm not like that. I could pretend, but I didn't have to. And so now I can just be. <laughs> There's really no way in the short amount of time we have in our daily podcasts to highlight or interview all the great authors who joined us this year, but trust me, it's been a terrific 40th anniversary. As festival-goers already know, Artistic and Executive Director Jane Davidson is retiring soon. A lot of the presenters took some time to recognize Jane's 15 years at the helm. Two of the best came from Catherine Gretzinger and Sheila Rogers. Just a quick moment on Jane. She's sitting up there in the back row, wanting not to be um, drawn out, but if everybody could turn your uh, gaze. Yeah, everybody just turn around if you can. Just so much love for this woman and so much admiration. And you know, Jane embodies um, so many of the qualities that journalism requires. Uh, she's a truth teller, she's a seeker, 
She's a person who values words and language. She's a person who prioritizes listening. She's a person who has learned how to roll through massive changes in our world and has done so in an ethical, deliberate, and straightforward way, which is the aspiration of journalism. So this one's for you, girl. Thank you very much. Jane Davidson, who accommodated me so that I could be here tonight with you with such kindness and acceptance, let's face it, I didn't really give the lecture. Some really, really great writers did. But Jane, such great and deep gratitude to you. And I know that you will continue to mend this broken world through story. So that's just about a wrap. We're expecting warm breezes and clear skies for our closing event with the award-winning folk collective, The Fugitives. Keep watching writersfestival.ca for updates and news on the 2023 lineup.